Okay, we are in Exodus 24 today, and we're going to be covering the entire chapter. And chapter 24 picks up basically where chapter 20 left off. So just to get you up to speed, you know, Moses has received the Ten Commandments in the Book of Ordinances, which is what we've covered really for almost the entire year up to this point. He's received these things from God, and the people have agreed to these laws that God has put before them. So these are basically the formal parameters of the marriage. And since these things have now been laid out, the wedding ceremony was now to take place. And that's what chapter 24 is. It is the wedding ceremony between God and his people. We're going to read the whole chapter. So uh, let me start with verse 1, chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders uh, 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, the half of the blood, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, this is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this uh, event, and how you showed such great love and faithfulness to your people, and how you continue to do that through your son, Jesus. We pray that this time would be good. It would be a good meditation, something that would affect us deeply, in our hearts, and our minds, and our feet, that we might love you most, and we might follow in your footsteps. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we get to some of the details of the text, I think it's important for us to see the big picture story and how this passage fits into it. 
The way the Bible thinks of Israel is that Israel is a new Adam, set apart to be a conduit of God's grace to the world. That's the purpose of her existence. God is restarting humanity through Israel, just like he did with Noah. And as he he promised to Eve and then again to Abraham, it is through this people, a lineage that goes through Noah's son, Shem, that God will bring forth the Redeemer. And as, as James Jordan points out, uh, when God created Adam, when he created Adam, he gave him actually work to do. So Adam wasn't created to just kind of lounge around the garden and just munch on fruit. No, he was called to cultivate and keep or really even to defend the Garden of Eden, which itself was a temple sanctuary, a a place where God met with his people. And it's telling that when Adam failed to protect the garden and protect his wife from the serpent, that God appointed cherubim to this role and Adam was cast out. Now that God had set apart Israel uh, at Mount Sinai as a new Adam, Israel was given work to do too. And, you know, we spent the better part of this year studying uh, what they were supposed to do. They were to guard themselves and their community and their land from sin. And they were going to move into a new garden. And this is what we, we talked about a little bit last week with Canaan, which is described as a land flowing with milk and honey, which uh, functions as a new Eden. They were to go there and to cultivate that land just as Adam was called to do. You know, so much of what we have studied this year with laws in chapters 20 through 23 are aimed really at how to be a new Adam and a new Eden. And what we see in our passage today, and we will get into the details in just a few minutes, is the covenant-making ceremony and what that ceremony represents. You know, much like how the sacraments do for us, it's what it represents is that the people had ceremonially, ceremonially passed through death into resurrection. So it's, it's just like a wedding ceremony where a man and woman pass from being individuals to being one flesh through that ceremony. So too, the same thing is happening here in anticipation of what God will ultimately do through his Redeemer. And what follows in turn is that 70 elders, which represents all the people of Israel, were invited to sit at the Lord's table and share communion with him. So Moses alone is then invited into God's presence to receive instructions on building the tabernacle. And that's what follows after this. That's chapters 25 through 31, which we're actually going to take up in the fall. The tabernacle and the temple itself is fascinating. And, and most Christians know little to nothing about the tabernacle. That's why I want to put this off into the fall so we can actually spend some time on it and really learn about this. The tabernacle and temple is important. It's really important to understanding Israel's calling and the story that God is telling. You see, just as uh, Canaan itself was to be a new Eden, so the tabernacle was to be an intensified version of Eden. It even included within uh, its making the tree of life, symbolized by the golden candle stand, which also signified the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, who stands before the throne of God, which that throne was symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. And the tabernacle itself had really three levels, or you could think of three layers to it, with space for the people of God to come near 
in the outer ring and then space for the priesthood to come nearer, nearer in the next ring. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could come near to God's presence. And we actually see that reflected in our passage today with the people at the foot of the mountain and the 70 elders and uh, Moses coming halfway up the mountain, then Moses himself going into, so to speak, the Holy of Holies. And in the wilderness, and you can find this in Numbers, the book of Numbers, Israel's camp was to be arranged with the tabernacle in the center of the camp with the tribes organized around it, basically in kind of four pods in north, south, east, and west with the Levites in the closest range around the tabernacle, actually guarding the tabernacle. And the idea, and this follows from God's intention with Adam in the garden, was that Israel was to begin by cultivating the garden sanctuary, that is the tabernacle temple. And and this is what the Levites were called to do. And then the people themselves were to move out to the broader land of Canaan, which was like the broader land of Eden that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, and then eventually move out to the very ends of the earth, taking the word of God to the world. And this gets repeated by Jesus with his call to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the very ends of the world. So the word moves out from the temple and covers the whole earth. That's the motion of the Old Testament into the New. So think back to Abraham. He was set apart and established by God after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where God had given the nations over to false gods. And even though God judged the nations at that event, he still wanted to take the nations back through his Redeemer. And what the Bible teaches is that God will undo the effects of Babel. He will take back the nations through Abraham's family. And we can see this come to fruition through Jesus and Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit and our our own inclusion in the people of God. I mean, think about this. We are worshiping Israel's God. Israel's God, some 6,600 and change miles away from the city of David. You know, if ever you were worried about Christianity's prospects in the world or whether maybe the gates of hell might prevail against Christ's church, you need only to think through the last 2,000 years of history and consider how many billions of people belong to our God right now. Not throughout the history, right now. Well, this was Israel's purpose, but like Adam, Israel rebelled against God, worshiping another animal, this time a golden calf instead of the serpent. And because of their sin, God pushed them out of his presence for 40 years to wander and eventually die in the wilderness. This is why, for example, circumcision was not practiced during that wilderness wandering because circumcision was the sign of entrance into the sanctuary temple in God's presence. It's why the next generation after this one uh, was circumcised by Joshua en masse before entering Canaan, which was the new Eden. And that's all in Joshua 5. Okay, so you still with me? I just basically did quick history up to the beginning of Joshua. That's the storyline. Let's get to the text and see how this all fits in there. So when you look at the text and you look at verses 1 and 9, you see mention of Moses Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and then the 70 elders of Israel. Now, Moses and Aaron, I'm sure you know who they are. That's Moses and his brother, Aaron. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. And so together, Aaron and his sons represent 
the priesthood of Israel. Moses, of course, functions at times like a prophet. In fact, he was the greatest prophet until Christ. Uh, at other times, he's like a king, and in, even as a priest who intercedes for his people, and we see him do that today. Moses is really the Christ figure. He's set apart by God to represent Israel and come into God's presence. And it's why he's given so much access to God and is invited into really what appears to be the holy of holies, so to speak. The number 70 represents completion in Hebrew thought. So, for example, it says in Exodus 1.5 that all the numbers of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And chances are the number was actually bigger than that. But to the Israelite mind, it was saying, listen, everyone who's supposed to be there is there. The entire family came to Egypt. And it's like how when you go through Genesis 10, the numbering of the nations comes to 70. And that's on purpose. Genesis 10 was saying, making a statement about the whole world. Well, here, the 70 elders represent the whole people of Israel who in turn represent the world. You know, how it goes for Israel is how it's going to go for the world. What God does for Israel, he intends to do for the world. And these elders were the heads of the 12 tribes. And really, you should think of these as really the, the nobility of Israel. So God does not invite the whole nation up to meet with him. That's really quite impractical. Rather, he invites Israel's leadership to represent the people. Even so, Moses alone is invited to come into God's presence while the others are allowed to see and be in God's presence from afar. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 7, you see that there are two separate times when Moses uh, reads God's words to the people and they agree to do what those words say. So in my my view, uh, verse three functions like the declaration of intent that you see in a wedding where, you know the picture, where the bride and the groom and the father of the bride are all standing together down down front and, and the pastor asks them, if they intend to pledge their faithfulness in marriage to each other. That's what's going on here. In this case, Moses reads the Ten Commandments in the Book of Ordinances, that's chapters 20 through 23, and the people say, I do. Now keep in mind that God's pledge to marry this people was evident already in that he had already rescued Israel out of slavery and had promised to sustain Israel for her life, something that he was already doing, and to fight for her, and again, something he had already done, and to give her life in a new Eden. He had promised her everything, huge dowry. He's giving her everything. Verse 7 is like the exchanging of vows portion of the wedding. So notice that Moses again reads the book of the covenant. It says, that's chapters 20 through 23. He, he reads that again. And again, the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then they ratchet it up by adding, and we will be obedient. So the people are, they're well aware of both what God has done for them and what God is asking for in terms of faithfulness to him. They know what their role is, what their, their calling is. And they say, yes, that's what we want. They agreed to it. And they, in fact, double down on their pledge of faithfulness. And in between that declaration of intent and, and the wedding vows is a sacrifice. And this is very important. In verse four, it says that 
that Moses got up early in the morning. And this was you know, urgent business that took precedence over anything else. And he, he made an altar and 12 pillars at the foot of the mountain. So these are actually two separate things that are put next to each other. The altar was to God, right? This is going to be worship to him. The altar was to God and represented his presence. And the 12 pillars represented the people of Israel. And it's a picture of, of God and Israel coming together, almost like this is not quite right. And I, I hesitate to say this because it sounds like I'm belittling it, but I, I'm not. It's almost like the little bride and groom cake toppers that used to be on wedding cakes. Remember that? That's almost kind of what's in view here, that God and his people are coming together. Now, Moses, on behalf of the people, offers oxen as peace offerings on the altar because God and his people now have peace. They are not at odds with each other like the nations are with God. And he takes the blood of the animals and he throws half of it on the altar. And the other half he puts in a basin, so like a bowl where he's holding blood. And it's at that point that he reads the Book of Covenant again. That's the wedding vow section. And when the people say, I do, then he, he takes the blood in the basin and he throws it on the 12 pillars, which represents all the people. That's why he says, it says he threw the blood on all the people. Well, that's thousands of people. They didn't have that many oxen. Now he's throwing it on the pillars, which represents them. And, and he says, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, this might be the strangest wedding you've ever heard of. Uh, but this made perfect sense in the ancient Near East. See, covenants, they always involve sacrifice. They were always a bond in blood. So when you think of marriage, the same principle actually holds true. When two people come together in marriage, it is a union that is made possible through sacrifice. In fact, marriage is synonymous with sacrifice. I give up my life. I give up my desires in my pursuit of self for the sake of pursuing you. That's what a marriage is. It is a bond in blood because it is two people becoming one flesh that were not meant to be separated. And in that union, it produces new life. So typically then in the ancient Near East, covenants in general, they weren't always like this in terms of a wedding at all, but covenants in general were made between a stronger king and a less powerful people. And the arrangement worked in such a way that the king, what he offered was essentially to protect and to rule over the people and ensure their safety and police their borders and give just rulings and, and all that kind of stuff. And the people in turn promised uh, the king their allegiance and their taxes. And they allowed the king, you know, pick of their best and brightest young people for his use. Should either side renege on the deal, the penalty was always death, always. This, this is what the sacrifice actually represented, and this is why every covenant had one. You break this deal, you break this deal, and you're dead meat. You will be cut down like these animals we sacrificed. So, for example, in Genesis 9, when God makes a covenant between he and Noah and all creation, Noah offers a peace offering similar to what we see here, but God offers the rainbow as a sign of his grace and of his peace. This image is that, if you get it in your mind, is that of God putting down his war bow and now it faces towards him instead of towards the earth. So, so get the image, right? If you're, if you got a bow and you bring it and there's the bend and it's pulled back and you're, you're aiming at someone. Now, instead of God and his mighty war bow, which 
flooded the earth, being pointed at the earth, now he's laid it down and it's pointed towards him. That's the image that's being given there. So basically, should God break his word, should he destroy all flesh again, deconstructing the earth to a primitive state like the chaos waters like we see in Genesis 1, he would forfeit his life. And the call to Noah in response to this covenant was to be fruitful and multiply, much like what we see here with Israel and Adam in Genesis 1. So by the way, to give you an idea of how covenant-keeping our God really is, he's still keeping that covenant with Noah. You know, Every time you see God's war bow in the heavens, you should be reminded of God's love and his patience and his forbearance with this world. Now, in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, Abraham brought various animals and he cut them in half and separated them. This is why to make a covenant in Hebrew, for example, is literally to cut a covenant. But instead of both Abraham and God walking through this path between the animals, which would have been customary, only God walks through them, indicating that he will be faithful to both sides of the covenant both his side and Abraham's side too. And of course, we do see Abraham keep faith with God and you know, kind of fits and starts and, and ultimately demonstrates his heart for God with his son Isaac. But still, you know, it is God who ultimately fulfills the covenant through Jesus who, you know, like Moses, is the mediator between God and humanity of a much better covenant. And our passage is very similar to this. It's a bond in blood. You know, should God fail to keep his promises, he forfeits his life. And the same holds true for his bride, Israel. So this is a till death do us part because of unfaithfulness sort of arrangement. And what's so telling about this scene is that we know what's going to happen. You know, the first time reading it, you should be going, oh, great. This is this is incredible. This is exactly what the story has been building to. The second time you go through, you should go, oh, no. Oh, no, I know what's going to happen. You know, it's not merely that that Israel's going to sin. We've talked about this. The Levitical system dealt with sin. No, it's that Israel will run after other gods on her honeymoon, no less. But Israel doubles down here and says, I will be faithful, a wholehearted bride to you, God. And the blood is thrown on the pillars. It seals a deal. And soon after... God's bride, like Eve before her, worshiped the creation, an animal of her imagination instead of her true Lord and God. Now, what immediately follows the covenant ceremony is a wedding feast, and God invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders up to the side of the mountain to eat with him. And by the way, this is exactly how sacrifices worked around the temple too. You brought your animal, it was sacrificed, Uh, And depending on the sacrifice, you actually ate the animal afterwards. It was like you're worshiping God in the best picnic ever. Now, notice that it says they saw the God of Israel in verse 10, as opposed to saying they saw Yahweh, which in your, your text would be Lord in all caps. And that's on purpose. Not even Moses got to see Yahweh straight on. And in Exodus 34, Moses is only allowed to see the back of Yahweh, as it were. He asked to see him face to face, and and Yahweh said no. So these men are allowed into God's presence, like what will be the outer ring of the tabernacle, but they are kept at a distance. They have access to him, but they don't see him face to face. 
After Genesis 3, and this is interesting, just go through your Bible and read it. After Genesis 3, every time someone has a vision of God or enters his presence and it's not mediated through, say, the angel of the Lord, they never offer a description of God himself, but rather some aspect of their experience of him. So, for example, Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah's book describes the throne room of God with the seraphim and the train of the Lord's robe, but nothing about God himself outside of his voice. Or like in Ezekiel chapter 1, which describes God's presence through tons of details about these crazy-sounding angelic creatures, but when it comes to what Ezekiel sees of God, what he describes is just kind of incredible radiance and brightness, much like the rainbow, he says. That's another aspect of the rainbow. When you see the rainbow, it is a reminder of how brilliant our God is. The description in Ezekiel 1 of a sapphire expanse, that is this deep blue path, and just imagine an expanse deep blue like a sapphire above you, separating the heavens from God who is beyond that expanse. Well, that's actually in our passage too. But that's as far as really the description goes. It's like what John says in his gospel. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has seen God and he has made God known. So again, Jesus is a far better Moses. Jesus knows his Father's face and makes this God known. Even so, God's glory is described everywhere in the Bible, but there's no direct descriptions of God because none of us can gaze directly upon him. I mean, he's just too much for us to take in. So if you want to know God the Father fully, look to his son, Jesus. Okay, so these men are not seeing God face to face. They are seeing the glory of God much closer than they had before, but still it was at a distance. And this is for their protection. In fact, the text says, and God did not lay hands on them, as in these sinful men, he did not put them to death. And so it's kind of like if you've ever been to, this is not quite right, but it gives you the picture. If you've ever been to a concert or a professional sporting event and you see like the famous people at a distance, you recognize them, who they are, even as you are kept at a remove from them and you're not allowed to like look deeply in their face, but you can look and say, oh, I, that, that must be Nick Saban right over there. Now, despite that distance, These men are still eating in God's presence at his table, enjoying the meat of the peace offering, just like what Israel would do through God's tabernacle and eventually with the temple. And in the Bible, you see, there is no consummation of a relationship between God and his people without a feast. Without a feast. It's why even with human weddings, a feast is always appropriate. See, eating was central to Adam and Eve's relationship with God. They ate at his table. It's why before God rescued Israel out of Egypt, he instituted the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. It's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which our passage directly looks forward to. And it's why the culmination of the book of Revelation comes with chapters 19 through 22, where the curse of sin is finally done with. Death is no more. The new Jerusalem is arranged around God like Israel around the tabernacle, only there is no need for a temple. There's no need for a tabernacle because God himself is the temple and we know him face to face and have access to the fruit of the tree of life. And what consummates that reality 
is the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast. So like with our passage today, to be in relationship to this God, to know him and to worship with him is to feast with him. Now what follows from here is God's command for Moses to come further up into his presence. The others were not allowed to follow, though Joshua, Moses' assistant and future successor, goes with him, but not into the glory cloud. And the reason Moses is to go is so that he can receive God's word again, or actually more words from God. And previously, you know, Moses had written it down himself. This time, God will write it with his own hand, so to speak. And I think this is why uh, kings in Deuteronomy 17, which is instruction on what Israel's kings were to do, are instructed to write for themselves a copy of the law and to study it and meditate on it for life. Israel's kings were to pattern their lives on God's own practices, modeling their hearts on his. And this word comes from God himself, you see. It comes from his heart, and it's a reflection of his character and who he is. I mean, this is God's self-giving of himself. So when we get to the tabernacle, that stuff is not arbitrary. It's reflecting God's intentions for his people and really for the world. Okay, so two things happen after Moses goes into the cloud, or right before it anyway. First, Aaron and Hur, who was, you know, apparently, that name Hur comes up, and probably some of you know it from Ben-Hur, that, that you know, Charleston Heston movie way back when. Hur, who, who is apparently a leader in Israel in some way, and he's actually shown up a couple of times, I think in Exodus 17, he and Aaron, along with the elders of Israel, were told to hold down the fort while Moses was away. And you think, what could possibly go wrong? Well, that's the leadership of Israel and her priesthood. And they turn so quickly to, to other gods, even as they can see God's glory on the mountain. And it tells you a lot about how deep the sin of humanity really goes, that these people who had just feasted with God had beheld him pretty close, but at a distance, and could see his glory on the mountain turn so quickly to other gods. Next, Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he enters the glory cloud of God's presence, really the holy of holies, and there he waits on God. And for six days, this is incredible, for six days, he waited in silence for God to speak. And on the seventh day, God speaks. So God will not be rushed. The time pattern he has established for humanity he will do. And in grand total, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights without food, living not by bread, but by the very word of God. You know, his people, because of their rebellion, would spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering outside of God's presence. Jesus, though, as the good Israelite and redeemer of his people, spent 40 days in the wilderness too, yet was faithful for them. We are told in, in verse 17 that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. So what Moses experienced in miniature with the burning bush in Exodus 3, same spot, by the way. What he experienced in miniature in Exodus 3, he now experiences in an all-consuming fire that covers the whole mountain, yet he is not burned up. He is in God's purifying and redeeming presence. So Moses anticipates a better redeemer, a better mediator and priest, Jesus. Jesus, who 
endured the wilderness, who endured the shame of the cross, enduring death itself, is now in God's presence at the right hand of the throne, interceding for us. Think about that. Even now, God, Jesus represents you to God the Father. He prays for you. He loves you. That is one of his high callings as the high priest of God's people to represent his people to God. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that when we actually get to the tabernacle. So that said, you know, the temptation for pastors like me, at least for those who who receive the kind of homiletic training that I did, that is preaching training, uh, is to tell you what you need to do now. Here's the practical steps you need to take in response to this passage. And, you know, I don't think I have any outside of, you know, love God and love neighbor. And that, that kind of goes without saying that's our continual calling. That's our continual calling. But I say this because I don't know that the, this text is actually asking you to do anything more than to meditate on how good God is towards people he knows are broken and will fail him in sometimes heinous ways. I mean, think about this. God entered into a marriage where he knew, he knew his bride would cheat on him. You know, not just directly after the wedding ceremony, as bad as that is, but every day afterwards. I mean, just go read Ezekiel 16, and you will see just how heart-wrenching this is for God. He entered into the covenant of marriage knowing he would have to be faithful for the both of them because he could not entertain the thought of his wife bearing the cost of her unfaithfulness to him. So he sent forth, I mean, he planned for this. He set the plan in motion with Eve for a redeemer that would bear the curse, endure the suffering and shame, and for us and for our salvation, an unfaithful bride. You know, so as David Cassidy recently said, he said, you know, the gospel isn't an instruction manual on how to get it together. Think about that. The gospel is not an instruction manual on how to live your best life. It's not an instruction manual. No, it's a declaration of mercy for all of us who cannot get it together. Israel doesn't get it together in this passage. She never gets it together. Does she do some things right? Yes, but she never gets it together because you can't, you know, you can't make yourself right. Now, you can declare, of course, I will be faithful. I will be obedient. You can do that all you want, but you will fail. You will fail. Now, is sanctification a real thing? Of course it is. God will grow us in our obedience to him, and he does call us to respond. And the more we actually grow in our obedience, the more we actually grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him, the more you see your sin. That's what maturity looks like. So, you know, when we come to the confession of sin every week, here's the, the way you know if you're immature or if you're mature. If you approach the confession of sin and think, oh, God, yes, I need this. And you're thinking, why is he already doing the assurance of pardon? I haven't had enough time. You're walking towards maturity. But if you're thinking, all right, here we go. It's this ritual. It's just, I don't know. God forgive me, I guess. 
Or, what are we having for lunch? Or whatever it may be. Just know, you're immature. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying this because we want to grow towards maturity. And the more you grow in maturity, the more you see your sin, the more you see how gracious he is, and the more you want to walk in his ways. You know, our sin is not a reason to quit pursuing faithfulness. No, the opposite. Our, it is our reason to pursue it, to live a life of repentance. It's how good you know, our God has been to us and how gentle he is and how patient he is and how long-suffering he is and how faithful he is. I mean, meditate on that. I mean, let that story be the one that shapes you. You know, I'll end with the words of, of Sammy Rhodes, who I think sums up well the God we see in this passage. He writes, We are villains, but never beyond the forgiveness of Christ. We are victims, but never without the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We are victors and always hold a future with Christ that is eternally secure by him. See, God has done it all. He is the covenant keeping God, and he keeps faith with you. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, there is no God like you, a God who gives so much, who has promised so much, who is faithful and long-suffering and patient, who endures, not just even endures, but takes on our suffering, so that when we fail, you long to forgive. When we are sinned against, you are with us because you were sinned against. And we are victorious, not because of us, but because you made the victory possible. You fought for us, a people who cannot fight for ourselves. There is no God who keeps both sides of the covenant. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.